Today on the Beyond the Byline podcast, what does Charles Michel's announcement to participate in the upcoming European parliamentary election mean? How is it influencing the race for EU stop jobs and what are the reactions? It's Thursday, January 11th. I am Evi Kiori and welcome to your Active's Beyond the Byline podcast. The President of the European Council, Charles Michel, in a surprise announcement to the Belgian media during the first weekend of the new year, said that he is running as a member of the European Parliament in June's European elections and will stand down from his current position if he gets elected. But what can we make out of this surprise announcement? So if you ask pundits that have their finger at the European election polls, Michel is very likely to get a seat in the European Parliament. And with that in mind, his unexpected decision is certain to accelerate the process of finding his successor. In the past, the European Council president position was normally a part of the horse trading for your top jobs um, among the main political groups after the election results were, were announced. Alexander Brzozowski is Euractiv's global politics editor. On Sunday, we reporters asked him how EU member states had reacted to his plans. And uh, Michel told us that he had informed all EU leaders and most have reacted positively. However, so far, public reactions from the capitals have been scarce. EU leaders seem to be really contemplating what options they have to bridge the interregnum after Michel leaves. The prospect of Michel's potential election to the European Parliament introduces a complex timeline for selecting his successor. So what are the options if Michel is indeed elected? It's really uncharted waters I think we're in because the job only exists since 2009 and so far the three personalities that were um, on the top in the previous institutional cycles have gone rather smoothly when it comes to, to their appointment. If indeed elected, Michel would have to step down before being sworn in as a member of the European Parliament, which is 16th of July. His regular term would have been until the 13th of November. So in theory, a new president could be elected in June and take office in July with no interim leader needed. But this is a very tight timeline, especially because here we don't only have to consider the persons available for the job at the moment. Normally, they would have to finish their positions um, uh, as sitting prime ministers or presidents. It's not really a requirement that they would have need to serve as uh, government leaders before. But so far, this has been the case with all three previous heads of the council. So it's likely that EU leaders will go into that direction this time as well. And what happens if EU leaders cannot agree in June? There is one option under EU procedures that the leader of the country chairing the EU presidency could assume the leadership until the top job is formally filled, which is expected again to be only in November when, when that person is sworn in. So this would mean that the mediator role between member states could theoretically go to Hungary's Viktor Orban, at least temporarily between July and November. Listening to you diplomats in Brussels, it's clearly um, for many of them a nightmare scenario. I mean, one of Michel's main tasks has been overseeing the EU summit, which were quite critical in finding coherent responses to crisis, including the COVID pandemic and especially Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's clear that not many EU leaders would be comfortable in seeing Orban someone who has very close ties with Russia's president Vladimir Putin and who is seen widely as having undermined uh, rule of law at home, steering the bloc through potentially crucial months if if the crisis, um, especially the, the war in Ukraine, uh, takes a different course. However, there are also voices that say 
it would not change much in practice um, as the role does not leave much room for national maneuvers. And there are also no regular summits scheduled in that period. So it would not maybe make that much uh, of a difference. There's also a second option. If they plan really to avoid Orban completely, they can change the rules. With a simple majority, they could pick a caretaker that uh, could serve until the actual successor is appointed uh, with the EU top job decisions. While concerns about a potential power vacuum during Hungary's presidency arise, some argue that swift replacements are feasible, emphasizing that the European Council can counterbalance any undue influence highlighting the complex optics surrounding this political maneuver. I understand that concern. I actually do think we shouldn't overblow it. There is the possibility, absolutely, of appointing somebody um, swiftly. Um, And even if, you know, there were not to be a replacement, actually, the European Council is precisely the place where Orban can be vetoed. Catherine Fieschi is a comparative political analyst with a focus on populism, and she is currently a fellow at the Robert Schuman Center at the European University Institute. So I don't think it's a, it's an absolute catastrophe, even if if that were to come to pass. But you know, I have I would have to say that you know that frankly, it really relegates the European institutions to something uh, a little bit second order. If somebody's you know willing to play fast and loose with their with their term limits, it's it's not a good look. To, to, to sum it up non-technically. Um, but I don't think it's um, I don't think it's a catastrophe. Amid speculations surrounding potential candidates for the European Council President's role, there is a contemplation not only on the candidate's suitability, but also on their willingness to take on a relatively short-lived yet pivotal position. But which are the names considered already? There's been a few mentions. Uh, former Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi is the latest uh, hot tip, I think, um, by some as the leading contender. Draghi is a former European Central Bank president. He's credited with essentially saving the bloc's single currency. He's probably one of the most prominent EU figures at the moment, and he could have good chances. But for some, like for maybe for the Ger- for Germany and France, he might be maybe a, a bit too forward-leaning and too political for a mediator role. Um, so I guess we will have to wait and see how, how that um, develops. Outgoing Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte has also been mentioned uh, by a few, but It's no secret that he's eyeing the NATO top job, which is expected to be filled in July already. So um, probably that's that's a bit less likely likely to happen. But name game aside, I think the question is also really if the person actually wants the job. It's clear that the person would not have a lot of tasks in that time. Um, his or her job perspective would be rather short-lived uh, with only a few months. On the other hand, it might be also a good application for the position if he or she does well and convinces EU leaders that um, it's indeed the person that they have searched for all along. So that person might actually become the actual candidate for, for, for the European Council president's job. The decision by Charles Michel to step down as a European Council president and pursue a seat as an MEP has triggered a premature initiation of the European elections and a scramble for EU's top jobs. So most Brussels insiders agree that it definitely is the kickoff that brings also the urgency to EU leaders and political groups to make up their minds earlier than expected. It might also make potential candidates make up their minds faster when it comes to declaring their interests um, for any of the top jobs. Although there seems to be 
an odd consensus and expectation in Brussels and also among member states that it is very likely to happen. European Commission President von der Leyen has not yet come forward. So whether she wants to run for a second term, I think will also highly influence how the EU top job debate is going to to happen. The decision by Charles Michel actually um, forces uh, the uh, the rest of the European sphere to actually almost uh, pull the starting uh, pull the starting gun on the European elections and the scramble for the top jobs earlier than they might have wished. Um, so I think that, you know, this is part of why, in my sense, there's been such criticism uh, of him. It means that, you know, if he has to um, step down uh, as European Council president in order uh, to take up post as an MEP, um, and if he has to concentrate on his campaign rather than concentrate on his job as uh, as council president, um, to some extent, that means that um, everyone else has to start making um, contingency plans. Um, and also, it it starts the race for all the top jobs, which normally happens later, a little earlier. I don't think we should underestimate the fact that um, many people in Brussels are annoyed <laughs> by having to do this earlier than expected at a time when, in fact, you know, they have bigger fish to fry um, than, than cater to Charles Michel's, you know, personal political ambitions. Do you see Ursula von der Leyen going for another term and battling with uh, Charles Michel on this? Well, it, you know, it would be a continuation of their relationship, wouldn't it? Um, the, this this battle, I mean, their relationship is notoriously a strained one. Um, I do think that, uh, I mean, Ursula von der Leyen, as we all know, has not declared whether she's running for a second term. Um, if the EPP does uh, come out as the largest party, which it looks likely to do, um, you know, it, she would have a, a perfectly valid claim to it. And the um, the EPP statutes are pretty clear that they would be running a Spitzenkandidat, right? They they are, you know, they're still committed to that uh, to that process. Um, so I do think that you know she will be running. I think she has you know huge amounts of legitimacy. So she is definitely a, a strong contender for the post. Um, I'm not sure that you know Charles Michel you know, would be uh, quite the same sort of heavyweight uh, coming into that coming into that contest. And also the speculation, as far as I've seen it, is that what he would want is to be the head of the, the Renew group, right? And as part of the Renew group, in any case, the fact is that, you know, they are, they are going to be very far away from the largest party. So, you know, I, I do think even if he were to engage in that battle, I can't see him winning that battle. Catherine, we discussed the rise of the far right last time you joined us on the podcast and we talked about the results of the Dutch elections. And if our listeners want to hear more on why this trend is on the rise, they can have a listen to that episode as well. The question now is, what precisely should we anticipate? The parties of the Eurosceptic and hard right, populist right, are you know probably going to do uh, well and even better than they have last time. So I think that this is something that is being trailed everywhere, and with good reason. Um, I do think it's important to examine why that matters and how it's going to matter because 
Um, sometimes there's a little bit of exaggeration going on. Where people are saying, you know, are they going to take over the European Parliament? And the fact is that, no, they're not going to take over the European Parliament, but, you know, they will have increased influence. And so exactly what does that mean? And, you know, what we know is that basically the the two major parties, the EPP from the centre-right and the Socialists and Democrats from the centre-left, are going to maintain their status more or less, right? They're going to maintain their seats more or less. Um, the people who are going to suffer, according to the most recent poll of polls, um, are the Liberals in the centre, the Renew group, um, and probably the Greens. Uh, both of these groups, we imagine, are, are going to do much less well than they did uh, in the 2019 elections. The two groups who stand to gain most, we know, are identity and democracy uh, on the one hand, and the European conservatives and reformists. Both of these um, groups stand to do better because some um, key uh, European elections, European domestic elections, have granted some of their constituent parties, um, you know, uh, either a majority of seats, uh, for example, in the case of Giorgia Meloni, or a much more significant number of seats, like, for example, um, the PVV in, in the Netherlands. So we are going to see these parties do better. Um, in total, we can probably expect them, you know, it's it's good to have these numbers in, in mind. You know, we can probably expect them to have about 120, 130 seats combined, you know, and so it's it's worth keeping in mind that some, you know, a group like the EPP will have 170-ish and a group like the Socialists and Democrats probably about 140, 145, you know, so that puts things in perspective, right? Um, these parties are not going to, to take over. However, what really matters is um, whether they can work together, which traditionally has not been the case because they have um, really, uh, there are red lines and, and in particular their attitude to, to Russia, which is going to play out, I think, significantly um, in, in the composition of the groups, um, and whether or not they can make alliances potentially with the EPP. And, and this is where I see, you know, the danger. I, I, I see the danger of um, more ad hoc alliances around certain key issues like the environment or the energy transition, um, which we've already seen uh, in this current uh, parliament. And, you know, the other danger is that the EPP, you know, may shift, um, is composed of, of parties that have shifted further to the right. If I think of the the French centre-right, the French centre-right is a lot less centre um, now uh, than it is than it is right. So we can probably assume that the EPP will, will also move a little bit to the right. The upshot of all of this is that there are a number of key files, particularly the environment file and the Green Deal file, that might actually be slowed down because these parties have less of an appetite for this kind of policy. Thank you very much. I am Evi Chiori, and this was Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. Visit Euractiv to stay on top of the latest news, sign up to our podcast newsletter, and if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, you can do so on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever it is that you're listening to your podcast. Thank you for tuning in, Happy New Year, and until next time.
As part of our commitment to accuracy, inclusion and transparency, your active is part of the Trust Project.